Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome back to your favorite Book of Mormon podcast. Uh, this discussion is going to be in Alma chapter 31. So we've had the incident in the prior chapter about Korihor coming among the Nephites, and that uh, Korihor ended up going among the Zoramites, which is where he was killed. Uh, so let's go now to chapter 31, um, verse 1. Now it came to pass that after the end of Korihor, Alma, Alma, having received tidings that the Zoramites were perverting the ways of the Lord, and that Zoram, who was their leader, was leading the hearts of the people to bow down to dumb idols, his heart again began to sicken because of the iniquity of the people. For it was the cause of great sorrow to Alma to know of iniquity among his people. Therefore, his heart was exceedingly sorrowful because of the separation of the Zoramites from the Nephites. Now the Zoramites had gathered themselves together in, in a land which they called Antionum, which was east of the land of Zarahemla, which lay nearly bordering upon the seashore, which was south of the land of Jershon, which also bordered upon the wilderness south, which wilderness was full of the Lamanites. Now the Nephites greatly feared that the Zoramites would enter into a correspondence with the Lamanites and that it would be the means of great loss on the part of the Nephites. And now as the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just, the Holy Ghost bears witness of such testimonies. The impact is profound. Who among us, uh, Robert Millet asks, uh, who heard the final apostolic witness of Elder Bruce R. McConkie will ever be the same. Elder McConkie very humbly and simply bore such a pure testimony of the Savior that those who hear or read it today, years later, are stirred, are still stirred. He said, as pertaining to Jesus Christ, I testify that he is the Son of the living God and was crucified for the sins of the world. He is our Lord, our God, and our King. This I know of myself, independent of any other person. I am one of his witnesses, and in a coming day I shall feel the nail marks in his hands and in his feet, and shall wet his feet with my tears, but I shall not know any better then than I know now that he is God's Almighty Son, that he is our Savior and Redeemer, and that salvation comes in and through his atoning blood, and in no other way. Continuing verse 5, Yea, it had had more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else which had happened unto them. Therefore Alma thought it was expedient that they should try the virtue of the word of God. President Benson said, The gospel is the only answer to the problems of the world. We may cry peace, we may hold peace conferences, and I have nothing but commendation for those who work for peace. But it is my conviction that peace must come from within. It cannot be imposed by state mandate. It can come only by following the teachings and example of the Prince of Peace. Elder Packer said, True doctrine understood changes attitudes and behavior. The study of the doctrines of the gospel will improve behavior quicker than a study of behavior will improve behavior. Who can measure the power of the word of God as delivered directly by him, as declared by angels, as contained in scriptures, or as spoken by the power of the Holy Ghost? Here, Alma declares that the word is the most powerful instrument for change known to mortal man, stronger than intellectual persuasion or military might. The word heals the wounded soul, nourishes that soul, cuts through falsehood and leads one to Christ, it is the foundation for faith and, and results in firmness and steadfastness in the faith. 
That was by Millet McConkie. Do not expect the world's solutions to the problems to the world's problems to be very effective. Such solutions often resemble what C.S. Lewis wrote about those who go dashing back and forth with fire extinguishers in times of flood. Only the gospel is constantly relevant and the substitute things don't work. Verse 6. Therefore he took Ammon and Aaron and Omner and Himni. He did leave in the church in Zarahemla. Wait a minute, there's a semicolon there. That means that Himni he left in the church in Zarahemla. Okay, so he took with him Ammon and Aaron and Omner and him, him, Himni he left behind. All right, but the former three he took with him and also Amulek and Zeezrom. Remember, Zeezrom was converted, so now he's going to be a missionary too, who were at, at Melek, and he also took two of his sons. With the exception of Alma's sons, each of these men had been outside the church and were converted. Their experience is helpful here in helping to convert the Zoramites. Now the eldest of his sons he took not with him, and his name was Helaman. But the names of those whom he took with him were Shiblon and Corianton. And these are the names of those who went with him among the Zoramites to preach unto them the word. Now the Zoramites were, were dissenters from the Nephites. Therefore they had had the word of God preached to them. Those once enlightened who fall away become bitter enemies of the church. Verse 9, But they had fallen into great errors, for they would not observe to keep the commandments of God and his statutes, according to the law of Moses. We cannot always tell whether specific sacrificial rites performed in Israel were part of the Mosaic system, or whether they were the same ordinances performed by Adam and Abraham as part of the gospel law itself. Further, it appears that some of the ritualistic performances varied from time to time according to the special needs of the people and the changing circumstances in which they found themselves. Even the Book of Mormon does not help us in these respects. We know the Nephites offered sacrifices and kept the law of Moses, since they held the Melchizedek priesthood and, they are, and there were no Levites among them. We suppose their sacrifices were those that antedated the ministry of Moses and that since they had the fullness of the gospel itself, they kept the law of Moses in the sense that they conformed to its myriad moral principles and its endless ethical restrictions. We suppose this would be one of the reasons why Nephi was able to say, the law hath become dead unto us. There is at least no information in the Book of Mormon that the Nephites offered the daily sacrifices required by the law or that, held, or that they held the various feasts that were part of the religious life of their old world kinsmen. And that was by Bruce R. McConkie. Verse 10, neither would they observe the performances of the church to continue in prayer and supplication to God daily. They did not pray daily that they might not enter into temptation. Yea, in fine, they did pervert the ways of the Lord in very many instances. Therefore, for this cause, Alma and his brethren went into the land to preach the word unto them. Now, when they had come into the land, behold, to their astonishment, they found that the Zoramites had built synagogues. Since the Zoramites did not participate in the rituals or practices of the law of Moses, this was not a Jewish synagogue in the same way they were used in the old world. Rather, this is a generic building used as a meeting place. Uh, continuing verse 12, and that they did gather themselves together on one day of the week, which day they did call the day of the Lord, and they did worship after a manner which Alma and his brethren had never beheld. For they had a place built up in the center of their synagogue, a place for standing, which was high above the head, and, and the top thereof would only admit one person. Therefore, whosoever desired to worship must go forth and stand upon the top thereof, and stretch forth his hands towards heaven, and cry with a loud voice, saying, Holy, holy God, we believe that thou art God, and we believe that thou art holy, and that thou wast a spirit, and that thou art a spirit, and that thou wilt be a spirit forever. 
Holy God, we believe that thou hast separated us from our brethren, and we do not believe in the tradition of our brethren, which was handed down to them by the childishness of their fathers. But we believe that thou hast elected us to be thy holy children. Although the Zoramites used the terminology of election, what they really fostered was the idea of elitism, which also, which almost always has as it, at its heart a disdain for others. True election promotes a genuine concern for the welfare of others. Elitism seems to cause people to forget God six out of seven days because it turns them selfishly inward. But the true doctrine of election promotes a daily desire for communion with deity and a search for the divine within us. Continuing verse 16, And also thou hast made it known unto us that there shall be no Christ. But thou art the same yesterday, today, and forever, and thou hast elected us that we should be saved, whilst all around us are elected to be cast by, the, by thy wrath down to hell. For the which holiness, O God, we thank thee, and we also thank thee that thou hast elected us. Joseph Smith clearly identified why self-righteousness is so dangerous. It prevents repentance and keeps a person from developing the love of God. In an 1842 discourse, he said, All the religious world is boasting of its righteousness. It is the doctrine of the devil to retard our progress by filling us with self-righteousness. Hugh Nibley said, These lessons have always been hard for the Latter-day Saints to learn, and it is clear from the words of Brigham Young that we still have a long way to go. There are a few absolute and categorical thou shalt nots in the scriptures which we are from, which we are far from taking to heart. We have been told that under no circumstances are we to contend, accuse, coerce, aspire, or flatter. These practices will be readily recognized as standard procedure in getting to the top in our modern competitive society. What all of them have in common is a feeling of self-righteousness. Next to covetousness, it was self-righteousness against which Joseph and Brigham most urgently warned the saints. Let not any man publish his own righteousness, said the prophet Joseph. Not even one might, not even one might add in testimony meeting. Don't be limited in your views with regard to your neighbor's virtue, but beware of self-righteousness and be limited in the estimate of your own virtues. You must enlarge your souls towards each other. As you increase in innocence and virtue, as you increase in goodness, let your hearts expand. Let them be enlarged towards others. You must not be contracted, but you must be liberal in your feelings. Christ was condemned by the self-righteous Jews because he took sinners into his society. All the religious world is boasting of righteousness. It is the doctrine of the devil to retard the human mind and hinder our progress by filling us with self-righteousness. We are full of selfishness. The devil flatters us that we are very righteous when we are feeding on the faults of others. Continuing verse 17, that we may not be led away after the foolish traditions of our brethren, which doth bind them down to a belief of Christ, which doth lead their hearts to wander far from thee, our God. And again we thank thee, O God, that we are a chosen and a holy people. Amen. The time will come when there will be a surrender of every person who has ever lived on this earth, and it will be an unforced surrender, an unconditional surrender. When will it be for you? It is not if you will capitulate to the great truth, it is when. For I know that you cannot indefinitely resist the power and pressure of truth. That was by President Spencer W. Kimball. <clears throat> Verse 19. Now it came to pass that after Alma and his brethren and his sons had heard these words, or heard these prayers, they were astonished beyond all measure. For behold, every man did go forth and offer up these same prayers. Charles W. Penrose said, It seems that many who have accepted the Christian religion act as if they expected to be heard because of their many words. They also use what here are called vain repetitions. Now, prayer is not acceptable for its rhetoric, 
It is that which comes from the heart, the sincere sentiment, the secret feeling, which ascends to our Father and which he, who sees in secret, will reward openly. It is not a multitude of words and repetitions that, in, that is pleasing to the Lord, but the earnest desire of a humble heart. And this will be answered no matter how broken or ungrammatical the language may be. On the other hand, no matter how flowery the language of the, of the petition may be, if it does not convey the feelings of the heart, it is not true prayer. Verse 21, now the place was called by them Ramiumptum, which being interpreted is the holy stand. And this is, uh, some of this is taken from the Encyclopedia of Mormonism and some by uh, Reynolds and Schottel from the commentary in the Book of Mormon. It says, Ramiumptum was the name given by the Zoramites to the elevated place in their synagogues, whence they offered up their vain, glorious, and, and hypocritical prayers. Alma states that the word means holy stand. It resembles in its roots Hebrew and also Egyptian in a remarkable manner. Ramoth, high as Ramoth, Gilead, elevated a place where one can see and be seen, or in a figurative sense, sublime or exalted. MPTOM uh, has probably its roots in the, in the Hebrew word translated threshold, as we are told that the Philistines god Dagon has a threshold in Ashdod. Words with this root are quite common in the Bible. Thus we see how Ramiumptum means a high place to stand upon a holy stand. Many, while many words and names found in the Book of Mormon have exact equivalents in the Hebrew Bible, certain others exhibit Semitic characteristics, though their spelling does not always match known Hebrew forms. For example, Rabbana, as, as great king in Alma 18, may have affinities with the Hebrew root, RBB meaning to be great or many, Ramiumptum, meaning holy stand, contains con consonantal patterns, uh, I think that means consonants, uh, suggesting the stems RMM and RAMAH to be high and TMM, TAM, and TOM to be complete, perfect, or holy. And that was out of the Encyclopedia of Mormonism. I know you wanted to know all about that stuff about the Ramiumptum, so you're welcome. Verse 22, now from this stand they did, they did offer up every man the selfsame prayer unto God, thanking their God that they were chosen of him, and that, they, that, and that he did not lead them away after the tradition of their brethren, and that their hearts were not stolen away to believe in things to come, which they knew nothing about. Now after the people had all offered up thanks and after this manner, they returned to their homes, never speaking of their God again until they had assembled themselves again together to the holy stand to offer up thanks after their, after their manner. Elder Maxwell said, true Christian soldiers are more than weekend warriors. Joseph Smith said, I love that man better who swears a stream as long as my arm, yet deals justice to his neighbors and mercifully deals his substance to the poor than the long, smooth-faced hypocrite. Elder Maxwell said, values that are unassimilated into home life obviously fail to touch the major portion of our lives and therefore cannot help us either in that most important laboratory of all, the laboratory of our families. But when our homes help us to be compassionate and selfless, then we have a school on whose graduates all of society depends. Verse 24, now when Alma saw that saw this, his heart was grieved, for he saw that they were a wicked and a perverse people. Yea, he saw that their hearts were set upon gold and upon silver and upon all manner of fine goods. Yea, and he also saw that their hearts were lifted up unto great boasting in their pride. And he lifted up his voice to heaven and cried, saying, Oh, how long, O Lord, wilt thou suffer that thy servants shall, shall dwell here below in the flesh, to behold such gross wickedness among the children of men? Behold, O God, they cry unto thee, and yet their hearts are swallowed up in their pride. Behold, O God, they cry unto thee with their mouths, while they are puffed up, even to greatness. 
with the vain things of the world. Behold, O oh my God, their costly apparel and their ringlets and their bracelets and their ornaments of gold and all their precious things which they are ornamented with. And behold, their hearts are set upon them, and yet they cry unto thee and say, We thank thee, O God, for we are a chosen people unto thee, while others shall perish. Our society may well be as guilty as the wealthy Zoramites of, of using fashion as the science of appearances, inspiring us with the desire to seem rather than to be. That was by Edwin Hubble. Edwin Hubble Chapel. Chapin, sorry. In our day, the costly apparel syndrome may be identified as one aspect of the modern-day term conspicuous consumption. The word conspicuous alludes to the visual side of vanity, the need to be seen, to be recognized. Consumption refers to that which we take in or that which we consume. Conspicuous consumption may be defined as that which we take to ourselves in order to be recognized and approved by others. By its very definition, the person trapped in conspicuous consumption, especially as it applies to costly apparel, must be focused on the opinions of others because what is in today may be out tomorrow. Vanity then becomes its own punishment because there is never time to be satisfied. The eyes and opinions of others can turn so quickly to embrace someone else. For us, the disease that afflicted the Zoramites encompasses more than clothing. It can include cars, house, bo houses, boats, diplomas, and anything else that has a foundation where the need for the approval of man carries more weight than the need to be accepted by God. That was by Doug Bassett. Hugh Nibley said, The wickedest people in the Book of Mormon are the Zoramites, a proud, independent, courageous, industrious, enterprising, patriotic, prosperous people who attended strictly to their weekly religious duties with the proper observance of dress standards. Thanking God for all he had given them, they, were, they bore testimony to his goodness. They were sustained in all their doings by a perfectly beautiful self-image. Well, what is wrong with any of that? There is just one thing that spoils it all, and that is they are really thinking of something else. Behold, O oh my God, their costly apparel, all their precious things, their hearts are set upon them. And yet they cry unto thee and say, We thank thee, O God, for we are a chosen people unto thee, while others shall perish. Verse 29, Yea, and they say that they are, that thou hast made, let me start over, verse 29, Yea, and they say that thou hast made it known unto them that they shall, that there will be no Christ. O Lord God, how long wilt thou suffer that such wickedness and infidelity shall be among this people? O Lord, wilt thou give me strength that I may bear with mine infirmities, for I am infirm, and such wickedness among this people doth pain my soul. O Lord, my heart is exceedingly sorrowful. Wilt thou comfort my soul in Christ? O Lord, wilt thou grant unto me that I may have strength, that I may suffer with patience these afflictions, which shall come upon me because of the iniquity of this people? Elder Maxwell said, Why is non-endurance a denial of the Lord? Because giving up is a denial of the Lord's loving capacity to see us through all these things. Giving up suggests that God is less than he really is. So much of life's curriculum consists of efforts by the Lord to keep, to get and keep our attention. Ironically, the stimuli he uses are often that which is seen by us as something to endure. Sometimes what we are being asked to endure is his help. Help to draw us away from the cares of the world. Help to draw us away from the self-centeredness. Attention getting help when we still, when the still small voice has been ignored by us. Help in the shaping of our souls and help to keep the promises we made so long ago to him and to ourselves. Whether the afflictions are self-induced, as most of them are, or whether they are of the divine tutorial type, it matters not. Either way, the Lord can help us so that our afflictions, said Alma, can be swallowed up in the joy of Christ. Thus, afflictions are endured and are overcome by joy. 
The sour notes are lost amid a symphony of salvational sounds. Our afflictions, brothers and sisters, may not be extinguished. Instead, they can be dwarfed and swallowed up in the joy of Christ. This is how we overcome most of the time, not the elimination of affliction, but the placing of them in their larger context. Verse 32, O Lord, wilt thou comfort my soul and give unto me success, and also my fellow laborers who are with me, yea, Ammon and Aaron and Omner, and also Amalek and Zeezrom, and also my two sons, yea, even all these wilt thou comfort, O Lord, yea, wilt thou comfort their souls in Christ. Wilt thou grant unto them that they may have strength, that they may bear their afflictions, which shall come upon them because of the iniquities of this people. O Lord, wilt thou grant unto us that we may have success in bringing them again unto thee in Christ. Elder Packer said, Letters come from those who have made tragic mistakes. They ask, Can I ever be forgiven? The answer is yes. The gospel teaches us that relief from torment and guilt can be can be earned through repentance. Save for those few who defect to perdition, after having known a fullness, there is no habit, no addiction, no rebellion, no transgression, no offense exempted from the promise of complete forgiveness. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That is, Isaiah continued, if ye be willing and obedient. Verse 35, Behold, O Lord, thou, the, their souls are precious. In a modern revelation, the Lord explained that the, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. Latter-day Saints are fond of quoting this verse and then skipping down the scriptural page to those verses that speak further of the joy that comes from bringing the blessings of the gospel into the lives of many. The question might be asked, why is the worth of souls great? We might respond that as children of the man of holiness, we have marvelous possibilities. As sons and daughters of God, we are possessed, although now in rudimentary form, of the attributes of godliness. The Lord provides an additional answer from Scripture. For behold, the Lord your Redeemer suffered death in the flesh, wherefore he suffered the pains of all men, that all men might repent and come unto him, and he that hath and he hath risen again from the dead, that he might bring all men unto him on conditions of repentance. And how great is this joy in the soul that repenteth! Wherefore you are called to cry repentance unto this people. Simply stated, the soul is of infinite worth. We are not our own. We have been brought we have been bought with an infinite price, even with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And that was by Robert Millet. Continuing verse thirty five. And many of them are our brethren, therefore give unto us, O Lord, power and wisdom, that we may bring these our brethren again unto thee. Now it came to pass that when Alma had said these words, that he clapped his hands upon all them who were with him. So what he's doing is just setting them apart, probably. The text of Alma 8.30 indicates that Amulek had previously enjoyed the Holy Ghost. The same gift must also have been enjoyed previously by the others. We should assume then that Alma was able to bless his brethren in this particular instance with a special manifestation of God's goodness. That was by Sidney Sperry. Continuing verse 36, And behold, as he clapped his hands upon them, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And after, that, and after that, they did separate themselves one from another, taking no thought for themselves what they should eat or what they should drink or what they should put on. And the Lord provided for them that they should hunger not, neither should they thirst. Yea, and he also gave them strength that they should suffer no manner of afflictions, save it were swallowed up in the joy of Christ. Now this was according to the, to the prayer of Alma, and this because he prayed in faith. Elder Faust, uh, James E. Faust said, I humbly come to this pulpit today to speak about a sure cure for heartache, disappointment, torment, anguish, and despair. The psalmist stated, He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. 
the healing of a divine is a divine miracle. The wounds are a common lot of all mankind. Shakespeare has said he jests at scars that never felt a wound. It seems that no one escapes the troubles, challenges, and disappointments of this world. Some way, somehow, we must find the healing influence that brings solace to the soul. Where is that balm? Where is the compensating relief so desperately needed to help us survive in the world's pressures? The, the onsetting comfort, in large measure, can come through the increased com communion with the Spirit of God. This can bring spiritual healing. We find solace in Christ through the agency of the Comforter, and he extends this invitation to us. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Apostle Peter speaks of casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. As we do this, healing takes place, just as the Lord promised through the prophet Jeremiah when he said, I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and make them rejoice from their sorrow. In the celestial glory, we are told that God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. Then faith and hope will replace heartache, disappointment, torment, anguish, and despair, and the Lord will give us strength. As Alma says, that we should suffer no manner of afflictions, save it were swallowed up in the joy of Christ. Of this I have a testimony, and I so declare in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. That was by Brother Faust. Uh, Elder Maxwell said, Jesus, who bore the greatest and heaviest burdens, knows how to help his followers absorb afflictions in a unique way. Even so, we will not be free of affliction, but we will be given help in bearing affliction, especially if our wills are swallowed up in the will of the Father in Christ. Being swallowed up in the will of God can help us cope not only with afflictions, but even with death. It is noteworthy that this particular prophet, Alma, while trying to reactivate people, was efficient because he was determined to try the virtue of the Word of God, the very approach which has a great tendency to lead the people to do that which is just. Having faith in Jesus includes having faith in the assurance that our trials and difficulties are but for a small moment, even when at the moment they seem to be extended and unremitting. Faith includes having faith in God's timing. As we see the valiant reach breaking points without breaking, it inspires the rest of us to trust in the divine design in our own circumstances, which may not be immediately apparent to us during our trials. And that was Elder Maxwell. I bear testimony to the truth of these things and that as we strive to uh, overcome our difficulties and rely, rely on the Lord, that he'll bless us in everything. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. See you next time.